Um, we are in part two of this sermon series, and we're talking about race and faith and discipleship. And the, the, the wild thing about this conversation is that for some reason, uh, in our culture, the, the concept of race has taken on larger meaning than just the, the topic itself. So it's, it's been attached to all these other kind of cultural ideologies. And so when you bring up the issue of race, it's not, it, it's like people can't just say, you know, this is about, uh, we're talking about race. It's just attached to the, all these other things that can get really controversial and, and really uh, deep and difficult really quickly. Um, and what we tried to do as we established this last week is to really re- renew the idea that when we talk about this, we're talking about scripture. And I have, you know, I've heard people say like, well, you're just trying to be relevant to the culture. And at first I'm kind of like, well, is that an insult? Is that like a bad thing, trying to be relevant to the culture? But, but it's really not about that. It's about reading scripture and then allowing scripture to kind of dictate what we believe and think and the way that we behave in the world. That's what it's about. And scripture addresses these things. Um, and one of the things I think it's valuable for us to know is that Scripture uses, you know, this kind of gets nerdy real quickly, but Scripture uses the word, uh, the Greek word ethnos, which, you know, it doesn't take a scholar to know what English word comes from that. But every time you see the concept of race in Scripture, it's this word, it's the word ethnos. And I think ethnos is a, is a really helpful word because it kind of embodies everything to do with it. You know what I mean? It's not simply just like, the, the, the color of our skin, but it's our, it's our experiences and our nationality. Like sometimes when you talk about race, it just gets too monolithic. Uh, nobody wants to say, well, all people of this race are this way. It's just, a, it's not helpful to the conversation, but ethnicity or ethnos helps that because there's so much variation in God's creation and everybody has such different experiences. Let me, let me give you an example of this uh, using, using my family. Or here's a picture of my, my dad when he was in first grade. Now, I, I have to point this out. Those of you that know my dad, my dad still wears a tie. I mean, he'll come to church in a tie. This is no joke. One time I saw him going for a run wearing a tie. So, like, he is dedicated to the look. And he has been dedicated since first grade. This is a picture of him in first grade. Now, this is his first grade school picture when he was just a little guy in Scotland, which is where he was born. So he's an immigrant to the United States. But here's the thing. Now, I don't, you know, not to complicate the issue, but my dad's not Scottish. My dad is very much Irish because his parents both migrated to Scotland from Donegal County in Ireland, which is Irish-Irish, not Northern Irish. They used to throw rocks at the Northern Irish, so it's like a whole, the whole thing. And he, their family migrated to Scotland. He was born in Glasgow. And, uh, and then when he was 11 years old, they came over to the United States and, and settled in Brooklyn, New York, which is where my grandmother lived till she passed away. My aunts, uncles, cousins, they all live out in Brooklyn uh, to this day. And so there's this complex, interesting mix of ethnos. All that kind of creates who, who they are and who my dad is. Now, I recently learned, actually, just in the last few years, that when my dad came over to the States when he was 11 years old, that he really quickly worked hard to drop that Scottish brogue. Um, So when he was just this 11-year-old, you can imagine, you know, this little Scottish accent from this Irish kid in Brooklyn, and he tried to drop it so he could just, you know, play baseball and eat, you know, apple pie like all the other American kids. He didn't want to stand out, and so he worked to have that part of his ethnos minimize so that he wouldn't stand out. Now, I, I kind of get it. I mean, I understand the power of belonging, but is, it does feel like a little bit of a tragedy, right? Wouldn't, 
wouldn't you like to be able to have a conversation with my dad about anything and just hear that Scottish, you know, accent coming through? Because he, he chose to minimize that, um, to belong. And I think that points out to us the, the extreme power of what it means to want to fit in and what it means to belong, that we'll adapt who we are. We'll adapt elements of who we are in order to find a way to fit into wherever we happen to be. I don't know, maybe nobody explicitly told you when you were, you know, a kid like, oh yeah, don't wear that or don't have that haircut or maybe don't invite people back to your house because it's not going to reflect well on you. And so you minimized parts of who you were and parts of what you liked and parts of what you valued in order to fit in. Nobody maybe explicitly said, but we learned, we picked up that in order to be part of this culture and a part of the society, we had to, we had to adapt and be part of a friend group. Maybe you changed what you wore, or minimized some aspect of your history or family. So, some people even claim to believe things they don't really believe or claim not to believe things they really do believe. Sometimes we even, in order to fit in, will minimize part of our faith and part of our Christianity. We don't, we don't wear that as vibrantly as we might because we want to belong. We want to adapt. We want to fit in. It's the power of belonging. The problem is, is that there are elements of our ethnos, our imago dei, remember from last week, the image of God, that can't and should not be adapted in order to fit in. Um, I want to be really careful with what I'm about to share it with you because I don't want to make it seem like any claim of equivalence, uh, but I grew up in a culture that was not my own, in a n- nation that was not my own, around people that looked nothing like me. So having lived for about six years in Taiwan among Asian people, I could not blend in. We lived in a county, it wasn't the capital city where you see a lot more foreigners, we lived in a county, there's about 100,000 or so uh, people in that county, and there were maybe 20 white people. And so everywhere I went, I, had, I got attention. Like when I would get on my bike and I would just ride through town, people I would ride by out on the street would yell, American, now it's kind of funny because they didn't know if I was like, they just called me American even though I actually was, but they didn't know I could have been Canadian or French or something like that. But they yelled American so that other people would come out and look at me as I rode by. So they would yell and, you know, I, and, and it's, there's no, like, it's a stereotype, but I was literally head and shoulders taller than the tallest people around me. So you walk through a crowd and there's just no blending in and the crowd kind of parts ways so that you can walk through because you are different. You stand out. Every single time I went into a restaurant, conversations would stop and they would look at me for a little, too long, and then they would go back to whatever they were doing. And I just remember being like 15 years old, and my, this is true, my heart's desire was just to be able to go somewhere and not stand out. Just not have anybody look at me. People would run up to me in a crowd, strangers I didn't know, they would run up to me to touch my skin, because they had never seen skin like this. They'd seen it on TV, but they'd never seen it in person. People would run up to me and touch my hair because they had never seen hair that color. They'd seen it on TV, but not in person. Most of the time, the the attention was was positive, uh, relatively so, even though you still just wanted to be anonymous. 
But there were times where, especially little kids, they would look at you and they would scream and run away because they had never seen anything like me. And it was, it's a strange experience. So for about five or six years of my life, that was the kind of the daily experience. And we would come back to the States and it was just so good to like walk into church and nobody looked at you, to walk into a grocery store and nobody stopped and stared, to, to you know, walk down the street and nobody yelled American and asked their friends to come out. Nobody ran up to you and touched your skin and touched your hair. It was so nice just to kind of blend in. It just felt so good. It felt so nice to just be able to just be, be me. Because where we lived, there was no way to blend in. I, I, I think we have, I do think we have a universal desire to just have a sense of belonging. And, and if I'm being honor, uh, you know, vulnerable here, maybe this is more to do with you know, my experience and my upbringing, but that sense of belonging is imp- so important to me that I'm super hyper aware of like any sign of rejection where I'll like sometimes even read into things, body language and tone, like are they upset at me? Is something, did I do something wrong? Like I'm just so hyper aware. But I think we can all relate to that to varying degrees. To just to some different degrees, we're aware of that. Even if it's not you, even if you couldn't give a rip about what other people think or anything like that, you've experienced that maybe with your children. Had your kids ever come home from school and they said something along the lines of like, yeah, all the other kids got invited to this party and I didn't get invited and and your heart hurts for them, you know? Or maybe a teacher accidentally looked, overlooked them, you know, in some distribution of something and they got left out. You know, m- my little guy, they got uh, uh, grade t-shirts and everybody got to draw their own little self-portrait. And the week that they did that, he had to quarantine at home and he didn't get to do that. So he, his, his teacher had to draw it. He was, he was sad. He was wearing this shirt that, you know, had li- his little face, but his teacher drew it. It just made him sad. And I'm like, oh, that's sad you know, for Liam. It's not that big of a deal, but you're just, you just feel that, you know? You feel that you just want your kid to belong and to fit in and to become part. Um, actually, earlier this, uh, oh, maybe a couple weeks ago, one of my children was telling me about a social situation. I don't know if you know this, but in middle school, it can get a little dramatic. Have you ever heard that? Um, and there were some other kids in the grade that were just being little punks. And I got all indignant and I'm like, well, I'm going to call all their parents. I'm going to send them a sternly written email, and I'm going to let them know what little brats they all are. And my wife, very wisely and calmly, pointed out, like, hey, Patrick, before you do that, remember that this is part of life, and helping them learn to navigate that is really good. And she also pointed out, and it would be maybe more valuable if they learn not to get their sense of self-worth from some sort of hollow affirmation that you force somebody else to give them. Okay, well, I guess she's pretty wise, huh? (laughs) So some of you may be thinking, okay, all right, you're talking about all this like rejection and inclusion and I get that, but man, seriously, this is some kind of like touchy-feely modern millennial validate my feelings nonsense. I mean, when I was a kid, we got rejected 10 times a day, twice before breakfast, and we liked it. It made us who we were, right? That's why you're the fun-loving person you are today. But I think it's important, it's valuable to point out that this concept of belonging is explicitly biblical. It's explicitly biblical. We're not taking a verse and kind of like wrenching it out of context. This is a major theme. You could could even argue that it is one of the major themes in the New Testament. It's explicitly biblical. And if you will 
you know, bear with me for a minute. I think it's valuable to kind of dig into how this is biblical. And, uh, and I want just to see how it's woven through the book of Acts. All right. So if you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. The uh, whole idea of church is brand new. The whole concept. Like, they hadn't thought about anything like we're, as we conceive of church. It was just totally a new idea. And so they're all gathered together. Jesus is like, all right, guys, you need to create a community around me. And you're going to get together. It's going to be on Sundays. We'll sing some songs. It'll be great. And so they're like, this sounds awesome. And Jesus is like, I'll see you guys later. I'll come back a few thousand years later. And he just left them to do church. So they have this idea of church. And the very first sort of roadblock or or speed bump to church was this idea of like ethnic diversity and difficulty in tension. Did you know it's the very first thing that they deal with? Acts chapter 6 verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, this thing's really taking off, the Hellenistic, which is a reference to Greek culture. So this is, this is really notable. Luke, the author of the book of Acts, notes that this very first tension in the church is between cultures. So the Hellenistic Jews, which were people who spoke Greek and lived with a sense of Greek culture, uh, among them complained that the Hebraic Jews, which were the people that spoke Aramaic and had a sense of Hebrew culture, were, uh, were, were upset because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So there's these widows, they don't have a husband, they don't have a family that can provide for them, different culture, different society, don't have a social safety net, and so the church provided for them in this way, and they're saying, listen, are, is it, is it, I, we're noticing that the, 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 the widows of Greek culture aren't, they're not getting the normal food. Like, what's, what's up with that? And Luke draws that tension out because he's noting something, and he's about to note it all through here. So you know what their solution is? They create a task force. This is the very first committee. And they get seven guys full of the Holy Spirit. Each of these guys has a Greek name, which is kind of interesting. And they say, you guys, make sure that nobody gets overlooked. We're just going to make sure that this doesn't happen because we got to pray. we got to read the Bible. And you guys make sure that this all takes place. Now, one of those guys, one of the guys that's in that list of seven in Acts chapter 6, his name's Philip. And evidently, Philip just kind of goes rogue. He doesn't, he doesn't know the script. He doesn't know that the different ethnic groups are supposed to stay amongst themselves. And so he leaves uh, Israel, and he goes into Samaria, and he starts telling all the Samaritans about Jesus. And I think the people back in Israel are like, wow, what's Philip doing? He's not supposed to just wander around telling different people of different ethnicities about Jesus. But people in Samaria are eating it up. They love it. Now, the Samaritans are cousins of the Hebrew people. And they do follow the Hebrew customs, the Hebrew law. They have a semblance of this relationship with God, just like the Hebrew people do. But there's some tension. It's like Minnesota and Wisconsin, right? You know, we're pretty much the same. But then, you know, like it comes to football or whatever. And there's like some, for whatever reason, some random tension, even though we live like three miles apart. So there's this tension between the Samaritans and the Hebrew people. And Philip's just out there telling everybody about Jesus in Samaria. And people are like, I don't know if he can do that. And then in Acts chapter 8, Philip goes and has a Bible study in a chariot with a complete foreigner, an Ethiopian guy. And, and then the Ethiopian guy gets baptized, just like Jesus was baptized, just like the, the 3,000 were baptized. And so all of a sudden, people of different ethnicities are starting to make their way into this new thing called the church. Now, up to this point, I know this is kind of like, I don't know, I love this stuff. Up to this point, everybody who had been part of this new church experiment, this new church thing, had been people who were adherents to Judaism. 
They were people who bought into the culture, the customs, the laws of Judaism. These were not just random people out on the street. They were people who had sought a relationship with God through what we call the Old Testament covenant, including the Ethiopian guy. He was even in Jerusalem because he was there to worship God and he was on his way back. But then things get really crazy. Peter, you remember Peter? Peter gets this vision where he's told, you have to meet up with this Roman family and tell them about Jesus. And Peter's like, I don't know about that, God. And he has to be prompted supernaturally to do this. And he's, he meets up with this Roman soldier's family. So if there's a bad guy, you know how when we uh, made movies in the 80s, the bad guys were always the Russians, right? If there's bad guys in all the movies in the first century, it was the Roman soldiers, right? And it was always like the, that they were all, if there was a Roman soldier in the story, he was the bad guy. And then the text says, but this Roman soldier was a good guy. And I want to show you this amazing verse, Acts chapter 10, verse 45. Check this out. Everybody's out of their comfort zone here. Peter's out of his comfort zone. And it says, the circumcised believers, meaning that they follow the customs and the, and, and the culture of the Hebrew way of living, um, were astonished. It's a really powerful word. It means their jaws dropped. They were, un, they, it was like, this is unbelievable that the gift of the Holy Spirit, that the power and the presence of God had been poured out even on the ethnos. That's the word there. Even on the races, even on people who were not Hebrew, Bible-believing, the Holy Spirit had come to them. What? So do you see what Luke is doing? He keeps drawing the circle a little bigger and he keeps expanding it just a little bit. We get a lot of our comfort zone and a little bit more and a little bit more, a little bit more to the point where there's just people who are totally different than us that are starting to be drawn into this relationship with Jesus. Like, whoa. Now, my favorite part of all this is Acts chapter 15, because this thing is getting out of hand. Peter does this thing where he's preaching to these non-Jewish people, and there's another group that's like, I don't know if that's okay. I don't think you can just invite anybody to the party, man. And so they, have, they call a big meeting, and they get all the big wigs in the room. And it's kind of like, I would imagine, like a Supreme Court hearing, and everybody's got to make their best case. So in Acts chapter 15, verse 1, it says, certain people came from Judea. So that's people of a Jewish ethnos to Antioch, which was a non-Jewish city where there had been this really great thriving church. And they started to teach the people in the church, unless you are circumcised according to the custom, very interesting word, custom of, um, of Moses, you cannot be saved. And so they, they had said, hey, we're going to come to church. Do you mind if we preach this Sunday? We're going to do the Lord's Supper talk. And they got up and they're like, hey, guess what? If you really want to be dedicated to God, you have to have a little surgery, guys. And Paul and Barnabas were so upset because they were saying, no, 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 that's not part of the new way. It literally says, verse 2, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. This was during church services, by the way. So some guy's getting up and be like, everybody, you need to get circumcised. And Paul and Barnabas were standing up saying, no, that's not the way this works. Come on. That's not the way. This is not the new way. This is not the Jesus way. And so they decided we're going to have to have a big meeting. So they went up to Jerusalem, Paul, Barnabas, Peter, James, all these guys. They got together, got the heavy hitters in a room, and they, they asked the question, who, who belongs? Who can belong? So they got these eyewitnesses, and Peter says, listen, I'm telling you, I saw the Spirit of God, the power and presence of God descend on Gentiles. Uh, I don't know, Peter, are you sure? And Paul and Barnabas get up and they say, for real, we've been all over the Mediterranean basin. We saw God doing incredible things among the Gentiles. 
Everybody's listening to that. So they've got the, the witness of the Spirit. And then James. We believe the brother of Jesus in this story. He gets up, and it's so cool what he says. He gets up, and he says, hey, brothers, I mean, we've been listening to some good testimony today, but I, here's what I think. I think, uh, listen to me, he said, uh, Simon, now this is kind of important. I know this seems nerdy, but hang with me. Simon, which is Peter's Hebrew name. So you have Simon, his Hebrew name. You got Peter, which is his nickname. Any Bible geniuses in the room know what his Greek name was? Cephas, you guys are, oh, so good. Good thing you went to Bible class. So you got Simon, you got Peter, you got Cephas. They're all the same guy, just three different names, depending on the, the kind of the situation. Um, tells you a lot about what's going on. So James, Hebrew guy, uses Peter's Hebrew name. And he says, hey, he, Simon described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the ethnos. All right, so we saw the spirit. We have the testimony of the spirit. And Peter and Paul and Barnabas, they all, Barnabas, by the way, Barnabas, hold on to that name. They all claim that the Spirit came to all ethnos. But do we have scriptural authority? We, we have the witness of the Spirit. Do we have witness of scripture? And then James gets up, verse 15 says, the words of the prophet are in agreement with this. And then he actually goes on to quote Amos. And then he says something that I just think is genius. I think it's so clarifying. I think it cuts through a lot of the confusion and the fog of, of many different difficulties in the church. It's so good. It applies to so many situations. But he stands up and he says, here's my judgment, therefore. We should not make it difficult for the ethnos, the Gentiles, who are turning to God. That's so good. I mean, it just fits so many situations. Now, it's hard, to, um, it's hard to imagine what a change, what a switch in thinking this was. My, uh, my third grader is still at a point in his life where he's not a huge fan of kissy scenes in movies. And so we'll have to kind of warn him that, hey, it looks like, looks like something might be going down, Liam, you might want to turn away. Oh, they're going to kiss. Oh, no. You know, like kind of the end of the movie where the two people get together. And so he'll look away, kind of like it's a horror movie. And, and he'll say, is it over, Dad? Is it over? And sometimes jokingly, I'll say, yeah, it's over. And he'll say, oh, it's not. Oh, Dad, oh, it's so gross. Um, it's, it would be hard. It would be hard for me to sit down and explain like, hey, buddy, someday that's not going to gross you out. In fact, buddy, someday you may want to kiss a girl. That could happen. No way. Britain does not compute. No, the software does not need a different note. Could, does not make sense. This is what I'm telling you was the, the leap forward in thinking that they're dealing with. They're like, no, if you want to be close to God, you got to follow Hebrew customs and law and ceremony. That's the only way. And these followers of Jesus were coming along and they were saying, hey, that's great, but God is actually opening the doors to everybody. And it was such a difficult thing. But you cannot go more than a few pages in Scripture without seeing this tension kind of begin to play out. Because the gravity, I mean, Paul had to talk about it all the time, because the gravitational pull is to draw lines, to define who's in and who's out. That's just the way humans are. We like to know our lines, who's really in, who's really out. We like to have those boundary lines very, very clear. And, and that's just the way we are. I want, you to sh I want you to see something. This is unbelievable. I love this kind of history stuff in the Bible. Peter, I mean, he makes up a big portion of the New Testament. He's a, he's a pretty big, you know, figure in the whole story. In fact, he's a witness 
to say that the power and presence of God came upon the Gentiles. You fast forward just a few years, there's a, uh, this same church in Antioch that's at the heart of all this. Uh, in Galatians chapter 2, it says that Paul says, he, notice this is so cool, when, notice the name, which, which version of that? That's his Greek name. And Paul is saying, Peter, I'm going to use your Greek name here. I'm going to use your name that identifies you with all the ethnos. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Can you imagine opposing a guy like Peter to his face? Remember he cut that guy's ear off when they were trying to arrest Jesus? I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Paul, what got you so worked up that you would oppose the apostle Peter to his face and call him Cephas? Don't use his nickname, but you use his formal Greek name. How would you do that? He stood condemned, verse 12, for before certain men came from James, he used to eat with people of all ethnos, of Gentiles. He used to eat with just anybody. But when that group arrived, he started to separate. He began to draw back, separate himself from the ethnos because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group, which, of course, is the symbol. Verse 13, the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas, no, not Barnabas. Barnabas is so good. I mean, he's such a good guy. He's so welcoming and loving and kind and encouraging. But, but even Peter drew Barnabas astray in this hypocrisy of separating himself from the Gentiles. Humans, we just drift toward us versus them. And I think it's important to note this. This is valuable, and this is valuable in our current cultural context. To give others a sense of belonging isn't something that will just happen. It is a reality that must be fought for because it is not the natural tendency. The natural tendency is to exclude and divide and separate. It is a reality that must be fought for. So if that's true... How do we fight for it? Well, what we're going to discover is that it's just, it all goes back to Jesus. It kind of always does. Um, some of you are a little competitive, right? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but anybody uh, overturn a Monopoly board in their day? Ever happen? Yeah. I mean, games are inherently competitive. You know, when there's, you know, when there can only be one winner, it must be me, right? You know, there are some families that won't play games when they get together because it just gets ugly. They just can't control themselves. Um, I actually have a sense of competition in non-competitive scenarios. Anybody else do this? For example, sometimes I'll stop and I'll get a, a cup of coffee at Starbucks, which is in the Jerry's grocery store that's between my house and here. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get here at church at about 7.30 in the morning. I know, way early, right? Um, and I'll pull into the parking lot, and sometimes another car will pull in at the same time. And I'll see that car, and I'll think, hmm, I'm going to go inside. I'm going to get inside ahead of them. I'm going to beat that person inside. No matter who they are or what they're doing, I'm going to win. And so I'll have to walk just a little bit faster than I'm comfortable walking, but I want to make sure that I beat them inside. Now, it's funny because I don't, they don't know that I'm competing with them. <laughs> They don't know that this is a race. I know it's a race. They don't know it's a race. But I want to make sure I get in line in the Starbucks ahead of them. But here's the crazy thing. I don't even know that they're going to the Starbucks. They could just be getting donuts or eggs for breakfast or whatever. I have no idea. But I'm still in competition with them. And so I'll get out of my car like it's still rolling, you know, like get out and try to, you know, run inside so I can make sure that I beat them inside. It's, it's, it's 
Starbucks is not running out of coffee. It's 7.30 in the morning. I'm not running out of time to be here. But it's in my mind, I'm like, I better get ahead of that guy because I got to get to the church and preach about loving your neighbor and the first shall be last. And so I got to make sure that I get to my coffee and get to the church before they do. It's so crazy. Now, psychologists say that the whole way of thinking that, that comes out as competitiveness is called the scarcity mindset. Some of you know about this when you and your siblings were around the dinner table when you were younger and there was a casserole and you did not feel like there was enough food for everybody and you wanted to make sure you got yours. And so it was sort of like this, this uh, death match for the casserole. That's the scarcity mindset and we, we tend to bring that into our everyday life. It, it, let me ask you, is Starbucks running out of coffee? That guy's not going to, I'm not going to get up to line and the, the lady's going to say, nope, coffee's all gone. Starbucks is officially run out. No, it's not going to happen. Am I going to be late to church if I let that guy go first? No, I'm, I've built way too much time into my morning. I'm not going to be late, but it still brings up this. I got to take, I got to take, I got to take, I got to grab, I got to get mine. It's always wrong, but it tends to be the way that we think. We're in a bit of a competition. Unfortunately, with belonging, Humans can buy into this scarcity mindset as if there's only so much room to belong. And so you remember having a friend in grade school and you loved that friendship and you felt comfortable in that friendship and then a new kid came to class and all the kids liked that kid and all of a sudden you were jealous of that kid, not because of anything that they had done, but you were afraid that your sense of belonging, that you would get edged out because of the new kid as if there was only so much belonging in the world and in this friendship that could go around. That's what you were afraid of. And so you kind of wanted to edge them out before they could edge you out and they came up to your group and you would kind of like get in their way so that you could feel like you belong. We apply the scarcity mindset to our sense um, of belonging, too. There was this uh, short-lived game show called uh, Take It All. It was based on a British game show, but this one was hosted by Howie Mandel. Uh, same kind of deal or no deal era, you may remember. Uh, this show only lasted six episodes because evidently everybody hated it. But I, th I think it's pretty cool. I'm pretty interested in the premise. Um, the, the way that this works is that at some point in the game, there's this pile of money, this pot of money, and there's two people. And they, there's no, like, they don't do trivia. They're just facing off against each other. They don't, there's no challenges. There's no slime. There's no nothing. All they do is they make one of two choices. So person A, uh, they can choose to share the pot of money with the other person. They can choose to take it all, uh, and that's it. That's all you do. You choose to share or you choose to take it all. Now, here's the thing. If you choose to share and the other person also chooses to share, then they divide the money evenly and everybody goes away with a little bit more. But if you choose to share and the other person chooses to take it all, then the person who chose to take it all gets it all. So you can imagine they're looking at each other like, what's this person going to do? Are they going to operate in their best interests or my best interests? Are they going to give? Are they going to take? And here's the great thing. If both parties choose to take it all, you know what happens? Nobody gets anything. Nobody gets anything. And I think it's such an interesting way, like, like it's such an interesting kind of psychological drama playing out. The only way both parties can leave that table and win is if they both choose to trust the other and give. That's the only way that they win. It's really interesting. So if we both give, we both benefit. If we both take, we both lose. 
Very interesting. Doesn't that sound familiar? If we both give, we both benefit. If we both take, we both lose. There's something that rings a bell. Didn't Jesus say something like that? For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Huh, interesting. The last will be first and the first will be last. I mean, this is, this is Jesus stuff. See, these are beautiful truths, but in the moment, they are so hard to live out. In the moment where we're afraid that there's a limited supply of belonging, a limited supply of inclusion, a limited supply of friends, it's, it's so tempting for us to want to take, to want to take, want to take. And our mentality natural rea- naturally reacts with the take. That's just our instinct. That's just the way humans are hardwired. Take, 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 take. Think Black Friday. Has there ever been a wholesome video about Black Friday? No. Not once. It's always like somebody got stampeded. You know, somebody got punched for the last Furby. That's always what those videos are. It's always headlines like this one that I found from a few years ago. Black, Black, uh, Black Friday pepper spray attack at Walmart. Injures 20, you know, like, and we always do that right after Thanksgiving. Dear God, thank you for all your blessings and I'm going to pepper spray my neighbor, you know. <laughs> It's never good. That's the take mentality. Oh, great. You got a cheap flat screen, but did anybody really win? No. You both lost. Everybody lost. But Jesus frees us up to give. Think Good Friday. To give of himself, and it benefits the whole world. Okay, Patrick, I get it. You know, game shows, acts, I get all this, but what does this have to do with ethnos and ethnicity and race? What what does all this have to do with anything? I want, I want you to think back to that Galatians chapter 2 where Paul confronts Peter. Um, I'll just be honest. I, typically, if, if that were me in that situation, and I knew there was somebody that, was, that did something or said something that was a little bit, oof, I don't know, I probably shouldn't, I would probably just internally judge them from a distance, but I wouldn't feel the need to confront them. Why do you think Paul felt the need to confront Peter? The deal is, we have to fight this drift toward exclusion and exclusivity. Not just in ourselves, but we, we have to fight for it in our churches. We have to fight this drift towards drawing lines and boundaries and us versus them. The only boundary line is Jesus Christ. That's the only line is Jesus Christ. Paul's heartbeat was that this grace that had that had demonstrated itself on the cross was for everyone. And if anybody defied that, they needed to be called out, even if it was the apostle Peter. They needed to be called out because it needs to be fought for. There's no scarcity of God's love. There's no scarcity with God's grace. There's no scarcity about who can belong. Because this is the truth, folks. This is the truth. If God's grace isn't for everyone, then ultimately it isn't for anyone. This is my brief experience in churches. Uh, you'll always find people who want to continue to draw lines a little bit, draw the circle a little bit more tightly. And uh, they'll be at a church for a while and then they'll find something they don't like at a church. And this could be any church because, you know, humans, right? And so they'll decide, well, I'm going to find another church while I find everything that, they lo- that I like, the way that I want it. And you know what happens is the circle just gets a little smaller. 
And then after a while at that church, you know what happens? The circle gets a little bit smaller. And pretty soon those people are meeting in their own living room because they have drawn the circle so tightly. Nobody's safe but us. But if God's grace isn't for everybody, then really isn't it for anybody? At some point, that's going to implode on itself and people are going to say, even I don't qualify for God's grace. If God's grace isn't for everybody, the end of that road is God's grace isn't even for me. And if we want to live with a sense of generosity about God's grace for ourselves, then we have to live with a sense of generosity about God's grace for everybody. Uh, a few years ago, um, uh, I don't know, three, three, four, five, six years ago, I was at a middle school football game in Woodbury, Minnesota. You know, I mean, Woodbury is pretty safe place, right? You wouldn't expect to see a lot of racist things happening. The uh, Woodbury Middle School football team was playing against another football team that was primarily African-American, and the other team was winning. And every time they would do something, every time the other team would make a great tackle or score a point, they would, they would, they would make this chant. And you could tell it was kind of getting under the parents' skin. They didn't think it was good sportsmanship. And we're sitting there watching. I mean, it's just middle school, middle school football. Finally, I don't know, one mom got so upset that in the middle of this crowd, she, this, this other team had yelled this thing out that she didn't like, and she yelled out something. There was a moment of silence, and she yelled out something racist for the, everybody on this side to hear, and potentially everybody in the, uh, on the field to hear. And I, I didn't know what to do, because I, first of all, what's my responsibility, right? I should probably just like, well, I, that lady's bad. I should just judge her from a distance. I'll just judge her from back here. But I... I had this moment of like, I got I to gotta do something. Like, what do you do? Do you just allow everybody in the audience to just think that what she said was okay? I don't think I can do that. And so from my little spot, I was like kind of hunched over because I didn't want to do anything. I didn't want to say anything. And finally, I just, I didn't know what else to say. It had been kind of an awkwardly long pause. And I was like, I got to do something. I don't know what to say. And so finally, I just like, that's racist. And I said it with that much conviction, right? It wasn't very much. Like, I didn't know what to do. And the lady, <laughs> the lady responded, no, it's not, <laughs> you know, and it was just like, I don't, I don't know what to do here. And it was so embarrassing and awkward. And I was so caught off guard that something like that would happen in, in our modern era in Woodbury, Minnesota. And it was just like, what, 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 how do we respond to that? But the reality is, if we don't fight against it, then it's just going to continue to creep forward. We have to fight for the inclusion of everyone always, all the time. We have to call it out, even if it's awkward. Like, I didn't even know who the lady was that said it. I, didn't, I couldn't find her later and say, you know, you shouldn't really do that. I just shouted out some lame, that's racist, because I just wanted her. But I also wanted everybody else around us to kind of know that this is not okay. Just that isn't okay. That's the lamest story. I know. It's terrible. It's like, man, if I could have gotten up and done like I have a dream speech or something like that. But it's just so like that's all I had. It's all I had to, to do because I didn't know what to do in that moment. In that moment. What if I told you that we have brothers and sisters that most of the time feel welcomed and loved and cared for? They feel like they belong. But... Every once in a while, something will happen, something will be said, something will be done that just gives them a little pause. And they think, well, do I belong? Do I belong here? And then they're able to brush that aside and maybe until the next thing happens or the next thing is said. Now, wouldn't you, if that were even just 
possibility of being true, wouldn't you want to go out of your way to make sure that everyone, no matter of their ethnos, felt like they belonged? Wouldn't you want to bend over backward to make them feel like they belonged? This is, this is my challenge to us. As we talk about this topic, it, <laughs> it should not be controversial. And we need to detach it from our modern, like, kind of cultural, just, just swirl that has gotten itself attached. It should be not controversial just to say, I'm going to do everything in my power to love everyone and make them feel like they can belong to God. It should not be controversial. It should be just the, the, the step one of, of us in our discipleship life. So my challenge is, as far as it depends on us, as far as it depends on us, may we communicate and may we fight for this sense of unreserved, overwhelming grace of God to anyone and everyone. May we voluntarily lay down our rights so that everyone else may experience a deep sense of inclusion and belonging. May that be our heartbeat, just like Paul. Just even to fight against other people in the church who are just saying and doing things that are not okay, because that's God's grace. Yeah. We're, gonna, we're gonna wrap up our morning. I'm gonna say a word of prayer, and I'm gonna invite um, Abigail and David to come up and, and sing with us. And we're just gonna sing. And that's just one of the wonderful things about this reality is that we, we just sing together. This is one voice that we're lifting up to God. No matter who we are, no matter what your background is, even if you were born an a, a Irish child of Scottish immigrants that migrated to Brooklyn, no matter who, wearing a tie 24-7, no matter who you are, this is one vo voice that we're offering praise to God to remind ourselves that if God's grace isn't truly for everybody, then it's not for anybody. But it is. It's for all of us. Let's pray and then let's sing. Father in heaven, we're grateful for a few moments to reflect and to gather. Um, God, our culture is in this, this, this very difficult time of, of just turmoil when it comes to issues of race and ethnicity and the ideas that swirl around that. God, I pray that we as disciples could cut through that, that we could get through that noise and we could just truly live in this this, this perfect sense of your grace and belonging for everyone. May we communicate that, that deep truth to everyone that we come in contact. May we fight for it with everyone with whom we come in contact. It's in Jesus' name we pray.